This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We have work to do that you have given to us. We have responsibility that you have placed on us. We have the care of your people through their lives and also particularly at the point of their deaths, Father. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful in our work. Forgive us for our failures. Lord, cause us to live by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My topic this morning is strengthening the dying, walking with our people from sickness to the grave. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that happens in those last months, weeks, days, minutes. A lot to go over, but uh, I'm uh, going to put it into four different uh, categories this morning and uh, won't be able to do more than just an introduction, really, to each of them. I want to start by telling you the story of the worst crisis professional I've ever seen. 27 years ago, I lived in Cincinnati, and I used to go for walks, for exercise, as I do now. And so I would walk in the hills. We lived down in the valley, and I would walk up the hill. Cincinnati, if you're familiar with it, is valleys and hills. It's just a whole lot of gullies leading to a river, but all of them feeding into a great big gully that's 20 miles long, okay? And so I would walk up into the neighborhoods up on the hill for exercise, and on one occasion, as I was walking, I saw a couple of people between two cars on the side of the street kneeling down, and so I knew something was wrong. I hurried over, and they were dealing with a young boy who had been, who had run into the street and had had gotten hit by a car, okay? And he had a complete fracture of his humerus, If you know what your humerus is, it's this long bone that goes from your shoulder to your elbow, right? And so, I'm going to be a little gruesome here, okay? But the humerus was broken completely, but was not punctured through the skin. And so, what you had is you had about a, a, maybe a a six-inch long piece of the bone coming out of the shoulder socket that was still attached and the rest of the bone and the arm just hanging limp. And so as you're, there's a reason for me telling you this, so as you're watching this, he's screaming each time he voluntarily or involuntarily moves his arm that little six-inch section of the bone will move. And you're watching the meat on his shoulder, and you're watching something inside it twirling around. And it's it's good after-breakfast conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
Here we three are at the side of the road with a screaming boy and overwhelmed Samaritans were trying to console, immobilize, calm him, waiting for the paramedics to get there. And soon they did, they did arrive. And the first paramedic confidently strode up to the scene with his case of paramedia. <laughs> and uh, he looked at the boy... And I'm watching. He looked at the boy. He looked at the shoulder. He saw the display that we had all been watching for minutes. And his, his statement started with using the Lord's name in vain. And then he said, look at that! Here all this time, we thought that that kind of reaction would add to the child's distress. <laughs> well, this is about, this is likely about how effectively and helpfully I approach, I approach the first illnesses unto death and funerals in my pastoral responsibility. Failure failures. And so how do we successfully administer care to those who are dying or watching others die or grieving over death? These waters are difficult to navigate, especially in this present evil age. And so it's interesting that one man, one man of good conscience with a Bible, the Holy Spirit, and some common sense might do very well in his first attempt. And another man may have presided over dozens of deaths and, per and perhaps as yet have not done more than just that, presided, officiated, been there. Even if you're fortunate enough to, to have been given a manual it won't happen according to the steps that you find in the manual. And so we're supposed to strengthen the dying, walk with our people from sickness to the grave. As I said, it's a big subject, and so I wanted to approach it from four different but certainly interrelated angles. And one is leadership, one is compassion, evangelism, and shepherding. Not in order of importance, but each one indispensable. And they're indispensable to our work, that the work that we do regularly as pastors. But when we get to the place of having to guide people through the waters of death, we have particular challenges that face us that aren't, aren't normally there many times. So let's talk about leadership for a minute. There's an old uh, phrase that says, nature abhors a vacuum. Anybody ever hear of that before? My understanding is that it's, uh, 
that it was postulated by Aristotle, and that it's been debated for a long time. Um, you know, finally some guy said, well, nature, if, it, if nature hates a vacuum, it's odd because there's lots of vacuums around. There are lots of places where we have the reality of a vacuum pulling, filling. But that's how Aristotle thought about all things in creation. He thought everything had to be filled and so nature just here, this came to here. And it's evident when you see how our world works with water. Water goes in, finds its level. The gases that are around our earth are held here, right? Nature may abhor a a vacuum, but leadership certainly abhors a vacuum. Where there is a space where leadership is needed, leaders will step in. Good or bad, leaders will step in. I used to work for a while for Frito-Lay. And uh, they had a practice in their management training program where they would have men come into management. And what they would do is uh, they'd get all the, the candidates in a hotel and in the conference room they would set them up into two groups and then they would give each group a task and so they would present them with a scenario of what could happen and how you would handle the situation. So the groups had to work on it and then report back as to what could happen and how to handle the situation. So you have, you know, uh, 10 semi-loads of con queso dip. And it's not, uh, what's that one Spanish holiday that we now celebrate, everybody does? Cinco de Mayo, yeah. So that came into vogue while I was working at Frito-Lay. So. But um, it's not Cinco de Mayo. You've got 10 semi-loads of uh, con queso dip. Uh, you've got to get them sold before they're outdated. What do you do? How do you turn this into a wonderful opportunity? And so that's the kind of thing. And the groups start working. And when they get all done, the groups report. Now, some of you probably already know what the purpose of the exercise is. The purpose of the exercise is simply for the manager trainers to watch the groups to see who initiates leadership and who fills the void. And then they look for the person who is the one that will stand and report or the one that will be up the sleeve of the puppet of the one who reports, right? And that was the whole purpose of it. Because leadership hates a void. We know this. We know that in a situation where something is presented, people who will take leadership will step up and will lead. Well, many pastors and elders today are empty of leadership, and so when presented with a leadership void, they, what? I don't know. They avert their eyes. They sip their Starbucks. Something needs to be done, and they're not present to do it. When leadership is needed... Action is required, and people respond to action. If you don't know who you are in the authority structure, you will not act. Men who don't know who they are don't act. 
Mark 1, verses 21 and 22. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What did the people see in Christ? They saw a contrast with the scribes in the wielding of authority, in how he spoke, in what he said. Jesus could step into the synagogue. He could step into this place because he taught and led having authority, but Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. And he teaches us in Luke I always take people to Luke 7 and Luke 17 and, you know, the men that work around here um, perhaps think it's the only verse of the Bible that I ever, uh, the only verses of the Bible I ever read or I ever talk about. But I talk about the fact that there's an inextricable relationship between faith and authority and knowing who you are. And so in Luke 7... The centurion, verses 8 and 9, the centurion says to Jesus, I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at them and turned and said to the crowd who was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such a great understanding of authority. But that's not what it says. Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The centurion knew who he was. He knew his place. He knew what authority he had by virtue of who he was. And so when he responded to Jesus, he responded as a man with authority. And he knew Jesus had authority and didn't hesitate to say how Jesus could use it. You don't even have to come to my house. All you have to say is you say the word, I know who you are. I know who you are. And if that doesn't uh, drive it home for you, then in chapter 17 of Luke, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And then he tells the most bizarre parable. He says, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. Come join me for dinner. Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So, too, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we've done only that which we ought to have done. This is his response to the disciples when they ask him to increase their faith. You can just watch them. You have faith of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be planted in the sea, and boom, it's gone. And they're all going, yeah, yeah. That sounds great. Probably they're getting ready to say it. And then he says this. What's the connection? Well, if you want to have more faith, know who you are. 
If you want to have your more faith, when you've done everything commanded you, say, I'm an unworthy slave. I've only done that which I should have done. Know who you are and know your place. Faith is the foundation of so many things. And if you think about this evangelistically, you think about our rejection of authority in our culture, in our day, and you think about talking to people about Jesus Christ and submitting themselves to him, and you think about the reality that they cannot approach him without faith. And they cannot have faith if they don't know who they are in the structure. And so Calvin starts off the Institutes with what? Know who you are. Know who God is. To exercise authority, one must know who he is. To have faith, one must know who he is. And so Ecclesiastes 8, verse 4, says, Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? Who will say to the king, What are you doing? It's a good way to lose your head. When we go into the sick room, the hospital room, the ICU, the home of a family where someone is suffering, the funeral parlor or a funeral, we must go knowing that we have been given authority to lead. As pastors and elders, authority has been given to us. Authority has been given to you. We must lead the dying We must lead their families. We must lead the nurses and the doctors and the funeral directors and etc. with authority. If we do not, we won't be executing our work properly. If we do not, where are the dying going to look? Who has the words of eternal life? The oncologist? Is he the one that has the words of eternal life? The ICU nurse? The sister sitting over here out of control? The funeral home director? The hospital social worker? Oh, I'm glad you're here, Mrs. Social Worker. Finally, we can have something helpful as this soul passes from this world to the next. Now, any of those people might know Jesus and might be faithful in testifying and giving the words of eternal life, but this is our responsibility particularly And it's our responsibility to lead with those words. Somebody will lead. The vacuum of leadership will be filled. And the next thing you know, if you don't fill it, there's going to be an urn with ashes sitting on the deceased favorite bicycle in front of your communion table. Do you understand? Lead. Lead. God has called us to lead. Secondly, we must be compassionate. We must have compassion. 
One of my earliest pastoral encounters with death, a young woman called me after having found my name in the phone book. I, an ambitious church planter with a five-year plan. Okay? This is what she said. Would you come and be with me when they unplug my boyfriend? I don't want to be alone when he dies. Well, let me check the manual. I got to the ICU, and there he lay. Not a scratch on his body, just a pipe sticking out of his head that I am assuming they put there to relieve the pressure on his brain. Not one mark on his body. He was on his motorcycle at an intersection. A car bumped into him. He fell off and hit his head on the concrete, and his brain swelled. That's it. That's it. Jesus was going through all the cities, not Matthew 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Who was I there with in the hospital that day? A fornicator and her boyfriend. I knew it. Her boyfriend was dying. The roaring lion had devoured him, and she was left distressed and dispirited. I did a thousand things wrong that day. But I did one thing kind of right. I was there. I comforted her. I can't even remember now everything that happened. I remember that picture I don't remember my words. I doubt they were very good. Jesus had compassion. He looked over the people and he felt viscerally for them in his organs. He had compassion with them. We're supposed to walk with our people from sickness to the grave. You're supposed to walk with your people from sickness to the grave. Who are your people? As I was preparing for this, I was recalling, I started making lists of deaths, right? This death, that death, this funeral. And I'm going through the list, and it's interesting. There were family members of church attendees that didn't come to the church. There were friends of church attendees that didn't come to the church. There were people that worked on my house. There were more of these kinds of people by far than church members. And you might say, well, you've always pastored, if you know me, it's true. You've always pastored churches 
with a younger demographic, and so there's less likelihood that as many members of my church are going to be dying as maybe even the general populace or another church with an older demographic. But I would say, well, no, I don't think that's true. I know lots of pastors who pastor in churches with an older demographic, and that just means there are more people that look to you and more people that are connected to those older people that you end up doing their funerals, going to them in the hospital when they're dying. Do you understand? Who are your people? We are pastors. We are elders. Our people are the people who are out there distressed and dispirited without a shepherd. They're all our people. And we have a we have a particular privilege that oftentimes we're actually invited to care for them at those times. Have you ever gone to McDonald's and as you're sitting in the booth, all right, if you go to McDonald's, sitting in the booth, your family's there, and you're going to pray for your meal. And then in the next booth, there are some strangers. Have you ever stopped and said, would you all join us as we pray for our meal? Reach out your hand, see if they'll grab hold of your hand. Okay. Give it a try. Right? They'll change booths. But if you go to the hospital to the room of a hardened excavation equipment operator who just found out he has leukemia. And you've only barely gotten to know in all of your relationship with somebody connected to him. And you reach out your hand and say, pray with me, boy, there's a great big calloused hand that comes out. Help me. And they are forever now your people. They belong to you. His wife, his children, everyone is yours. But it's quite a ride, isn't it? When you go out to people who are not the church people, who haven't learned things you're not supposed to say and not supposed to ask. It's a different kind of ride. It isn't like you and your seminary friends sitting over beer talking about something theoretically. It's a mother who, over days of watching her daughter die in what's kind of a perfect storm of things that could go wrong. Her adult daughter, she's dying. You're in the room. She looks at you and she says, is God in control of this? Is God in control of this? The harvest is plentiful. They are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Just a side note, when you're being compassionate, be compassionate. 
But don't be fake. Don't be maudlin. Don't be... uh, I've been at funerals. I've been at places and watched pastors, and I just thought, you are such a fake. That is just awful. You practiced in front of the mirror. And the people who are there, often the family members have to be kept from this because there's a, there's a little bit of that tendency in all of us. And if people are maudlin in the context of dying and funerals, it's, it is, uh, you know, old men, get, old men get this way. You get older and you get weepy. You have to kind of stop it, you know. Just kind of, where did that come from, right? But... Uh, but people at funerals, people in uh, sick rooms, they will get that way. And it's a, it's, it's a selfish thing. It's attention. And pastors will go for attention. Compassion is compassion. Love them. Love them. Jesus says, if you've done it to one of these, the least of, the least of these, you've done it to me. Third, evangelism. In your compassion, proclaim the, king, the gospel of the kingdom. This is what suffering and death opens up to you in a way that's just amazing. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 through 4. And this was in the sequ- sequential reading in my Bible reading when my father died a couple of days later. And so it sunk home to me at that point in a way that it never had before. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. This is the place where work can be done. John Gill says this on this verse. He says, It is better to go to a mourning man to comfort him, for at such times and places the conversation was serious and interesting. Would you have chosen that word? And turned upon the subjects of mortality and a future state, and preparation for it, from whence useful and instructive lessons are learned. And so it was much better to be there than to go to the house of feasting, where there is nothing but noise and clamor, luxury and intemperance, carnal mirth and gaiety, vain and frothy conversation. That's another good, frothy conversation. Is that what they have at Starbucks? Idle talk and impure songs and a jest made of true religion and godliness, death, and another world. Okay? In the house of mourning, you have a path open to you for conversation and for evangelism as true and sure as you have the path open to hold the man's hand in the hospital room. Everybody's willing. 
and it affects everyone. You want to take children, and you want to direct your people to take children to the sick rooms, and you want to take children to the hospital rooms if you can, and you, if they allow them in. If you want to take children to the uh, funerals and to view the bodies. My son Ben was, I think, four or five when his great-grandfather died. He was a judge in southern Kentucky. And uh, Ben had known his great-grandfather. Um, I don't know how well. How well do you remember him even now? Very much? Very little? He had known him when he was younger. We had been there a couple times. And, and it was interesting that we took him in, and I, I may be getting the chronology of this not quite right, but I, my memory is we took him in, he saw the body, and I think we were getting into the car to go to the interment. And this is what my son said. He just suddenly looked at us and he said, dead is real. Dead is real. Now, what did we know when he said it? We knew that something had happened in Ben. He had come to the knowledge of death in a way that had never been true before. And that sober realization did him an eternity of good. It may have started him on his journey to the cross. It certainly was a necessary step. Right? Take your children. Direct your people to take their children. Let them see the dead. Let them see that dead is real. And in that place, work can get done. Eternal work, evangelistic work, work can get done. Fourthly, shepherd. Do the work of a shepherd. Now here's the thing. If you don't do the work of a shepherd with the living, you won't do the work of a shepherd with the dying. And so it has to be done always with us. You know, there's no magic. You remember the old thing, there's no magic in a plane ride. Somebody gets called to Africa. I'm called to Africa to be a missionary. I'm called to Scotland to be a missionary. And you look at them and you, you realize that They've never said a spiritually helpful thing in all the time you've known them. They've never been fruitful in any way, possibly. But they're tugged to call to go to Africa or Scotland or New Zealand. That's a good place. plane ride doesn't make them into a missionary. The plane ride doesn't make them into a pastor. Being responsible for guiding someone through death, dying, the grave, is not a magical thing that will just happen to you because you get ordained. You have to do the work of shepherding the people. Go to them and read scripture. Find scriptures, think about, pray about what scriptures you'll bring to them and read scripture. Sing. If you don't know 
all the words to some song, get a copy of it, put it in your Bible, and bring it so that you have it at their home in the hospital room. Sing with them. Pray with them. Pray honest prayers. Don't be... uh, They're dying. They know they're dying. They want you to know that they know they're dying. They want you to acknowledge it. So pray the prayers that need to be prayed as they die. Examine them. Question them. If they can talk, communicate with you, question them. Ask them if there's anything they need to confess. Ask them if, if, if they would like to confess to you any sin to prepare their heart. Ask them if, if there's a need for them to say something to someone for forgiveness. Seek the reconciliation. Plead with them about their soul. I have a man who's now close to me who's uh, uh, who has suffered from gunshot wounds, knife wounds, had a lung removed from cancer, had a surgery where they cut part of his brain out that was tumorous, has uh, no circulation in his leg. They're talking about cutting his leg off. He weighs about 90 pounds, and he'll probably outlive me. <laughs> but he said to me, why am I, I, don't know, I, could, I this is what he said, he doesn't say why am I alive, he said, I should have died many times, and I'm thinking, yeah, you should have died a lot of times. And I say to him, look, you know, I think maybe God, who, who is long-suffering and patient with people, not wanting any of them to perish, but all of them to come to repentance. Maybe God is keeping you alive so that you will trust in Jesus Christ and you'll, you'll repent of your sin. Think about how you can say it. Every scenario is different. Every situation is different. But you want to hold out Christ to them. Encourage them as they die. Surround them with their family. Get them home if you can get them home. If they're not already there. We're, we're taking all of, all of death and suffering and we're hiding it. And we need to stop it. We need to fight so that people will be brought back to home so that people will be able to be cared for by their loved ones and so that we can watch, watch our loved ones and care for them when they die and be watched and cared for when we die. And in closing, I want to talk about the shadow, the walking them through the shadow. Um, David last night mentioned that he and Tim's mother would say that, didn't you say that, she would ask you why God had kept her alive. And I think this is a common thing that, that people will ask. They, my father asked it. He was sitting in his chair. I was sitting beside him. It's one of those lift-me-up chairs that 
the only way he could get up to stand up. He can't see. He can hardly hear. He doesn't enjoy anything. It's even hard now to listen to the Bible recorded. And he says that to me. He says, I don't know why I'm still here. And I just didn't know what to say. So I thought for a minute. I said, well, Dad, I said, you have lived in faith before us and I need you to die in faith in front of me. And I don't know how he felt about that statement. But it was true. I needed him to die. It was just a few months later I didn't need him to die. I needed to see him die with faith. That's what I meant to say. It was just a few months later when um, I got the phone call that I needed to come home. So I went home in the middle of the night. My sister was there. My dad was laying in the bed. He was still able to talk. He knew I was there. Um, He died within the next 15 hours. We tried to sit him up. We couldn't even sit him up. Um, he, He tried. He just couldn't bend his middle because everything was closing down. Um, talked a little bit the other family members came hospice came in the last minutes um, we're all standing around the bed that is all of the immediate children seven children, my mother standing around the bed and it was then that um, the rattles started if you know anything about death, you know that uh, liquids, fluids, fluids start to come into the throat and there are rattles. They call them the death rattles. And so the rattles started. And so as I watched my father die, I could say to you that there wasn't any uh, particular uh, gruesomeness to it no huge exhibition of pain as he died. But there were some very disturbing elements. But the most disturbing thing for me is that it was my father. And when my father died, I didn't expect what would happen to me. When my father died, I saw the enemy. I saw the last enemy in a way that I hadn't expected to see him. And I saw him looking at me, I guess that's the way I want to say it. I saw death looking at me because I could see myself in my father. Does that make sense? I mean, I think about his death often. And I don't think about deaths of other people often. But I think about his death. And when I think about his death, I think about, I think about death ahead of me. Now, why is this important to think for you? Well, you have to be able to realize and understand death ahead of you as an enemy to pastorally walk with people through that valley. Because it is a distressing and disturbing time. And you have to go through them with them with faith. I believed what I said when I told my dad that he had to die with faith. And you and I have to sit with people in rooms and tell them, have faith. Have faith. If you haven't read it, recently, 
If you haven't read it at all, read Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it recently, I'm going to read you in closing a brief bit of it. So Pilgrim and Hopeful are at the river. And they're looking around at the river, and you know the river is death, and they're supposed to cross the river so that they can get to, to the celestial city. And they saw that there was no bridge, and they were stunned. <laughs> There's no bridge. And they said to the men, well, how do you get across? They said, well, you've got to go through. You've got to go through. If you don't go through the river, you can't go into the gate of the city. So they, they ask, well, are the waters all of one depth? I'm paraphrasing. Are they all of one depth? And, and this is, you know, Bunyan. <laughs> Thank you, John. You know. Well, you know, the waters, uh, you'll find them deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Faith. We'll, we'll show how, how you live with faith, how you die with faith, will show how deep the waters are. And you think they're about martyrs and Stephen, right? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Faith. So they started into the water, and Christian immediately began to sink, crying out to his good friend, hopeful. He said, I sink in deep waters and the billows are over my head, and all the waves go over me. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Now, the whole process of this story Bunyan is giving is he's showing you how people walk through death, and how they're encouraged through death. And so Christian keeps going, and as he goes, he thinks, it was all for you, hopeful. I'm going to die here. God just brought me here to demonstrate his wrath. There isn't any hope for me. And hopeful kept encouraging him and kept encouraging him. And of a sudden, hopeful quoted Psalm 73 about there is no distress in the death of the wicked. He's trying to teach him. Right as they're going through the river. And finally, Christian takes courage. And he remembers the verse in Isaiah, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And then he has hope, and he found ground to stand upon. Well, this is what we do. We hold their hands and we take them all the way to the far end of the water. And then the first step they take out on the solid ground, they're in eternity and beyond us. But everything to that point involves work that we must do, faithfully pastoring our people all the way through. And then when they're, when they're beyond us, we work with their families in their mourning, their difficulty. God help us. God help us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, I confess to you, as I have, failure upon failure. And Lord, I would have, I would have it that I would be faithful in my work in caring for your people. I would have it that we would be faithful, Father, to care for your people. That we would love them and that we would do the hard work of walking with them through sickness and death. Help us, O Lord, and be merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.